At the beginning of this new year, we have the privilege of beginning a new series through a chapter in the book of Romans that we introduced over the last several weeks and we'll now get into in more detail in the coming few weeks. And so if you have your Bibles, please open them to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. If there's one word that would summarize the theme of this entire chapter, and really the last section of the book of Romans from chapter 12 down through the end of chapter 16, it is that of humility. Humility. Humility is the opposite, quite literally, of the, of the high-mindedness that Paul warns these believers in Rome about. He appeals to them, as a matter of fact, we saw at the beginning of chapter 12, by the very mercies of a kind and compassionate God to present themselves as living sacrifices to God, which is their spiritual service, not to be conformed, but rather transformed, to be renewed in their minds to know what is good and evil. He had to acknowledge the fact that he himself, as an apostle, had to be taught what it meant to embrace and be changed by the very grace of God and not by any effort on his own. Paul was a hard worker. He knew what it meant to put effort into something and receive the rewards from it. But as we saw in chapter 12, verse 3, he said it was really by the grace of God that was given to him that he calls others not to think more highly of themselves. He's been there. He's done that. He knows what it's like to wrestle with pride. He knows what it's like to wrestle with self-accomplishment. He knows what it's like to look at his life and to identify certain things and conclude that it must be the result of his own effort. He says all of that needs to be abandoned and humility needs to be embraced. The reason is that whatever we have, we have as a gift from God. All of the graces, all of the gifts come from him, whether prophecy or service or teaching or exhorting or contributing or leading or even showing acts of mercy. It all comes from him. And so we find ourselves in a very interesting section of the book of Romans. Here we are in chapter 12, and, and Paul now, having identified all of these gifts that are present in our lives as Christians, he, he now says there are some ethical implications. Uh, there are some requirements on God's part. And I would argue that this is probably one of the most treacherous types of exhortation that we have in the epistles written by the Apostle Paul, because I think we, by nature, tend to look at these as lists, lists of things we need to do to make God happy. We tend to look at these as a list of things that if we can put them out in our annual planner, we can establish goals for ourselves by measuring our performance against these expectations. And I say that's a, a risk and something treacherous because if we're not careful, we can end up in some ways succeeding to our own detriment. We can become so good at, at conforming ourselves and providing situations in which we can succeed that we run the risk of thinking ourselves more holy than we ought maybe even considering ourselves more mature than we should and more complete in Christ than we are. And so as we approach a text of Scripture like this, I'm going to come at it from sort of a pastoral angle 
to warn us against that sort of abuse. I'm also going to encourage you that, that whatever you do do for the glory of God, it comes not from your own effort anyway, but from the work of the infinite power of the Holy Spirit inside of you. In fact, that's Paul's theme all throughout his epistles. If you go back and you say that the real effort here that we want to unpack is the understanding of, of what it means to be spiritually transformed as a person, you're going to see that that theme is what Paul picks up on all throughout his letters. If you go back here to the very beginning, you've got uh, the New Testament starting with the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then Acts is the story of the early church. And then you're right into the epistles of Paul. And here we are in Romans chapter 12, but it doesn't end there. If you were to jump forward into 1 Corinthians, you would see that in chapter 12 and in chapter 13, Paul says the same thing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that, that you are, are filled and, and energized and empowered by the Holy Spirit, so much so that you can do these marvelous works by his miraculous power. But that all of those things that were present in that early church in Corinth, as spectacular as they were, they are all absolutely useless if they're not done out of love. And so he gives us all of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 describing love. Well, when he writes the Corinthian church again, a second letter, this one is inspired as well, you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and he argues the same thing. There, in the context of caring for other people, especially believers that have less than you, he says once again that you are doing this by the very power of God, the life of Christ at work inside of you. You're not doing it just because you're a naturally generous person. You're doing it because God is at work in you. Galatians chapter 5, we read about the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, in chapter 5, he says, do not be conformed to doing the works of the flesh, but be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, that is how you do the fruit of the Spirit. That is how you avoid the works of the flesh. Not because you've tried harder or you've made good plans or you've set appropriate goals, but because you have rested and yielded and trusted in the transforming work of the Spirit inside of you. Ephesians chapter 5 is the same way. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the... Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit once again empowers you to overcome the power of the flesh and even the temptation to submit yourself to law. Not only do you overcome the power of the flesh, but you overcome the temptation to put law around yourself in order to keep you holy, or at least looking holy on the outside. You see, one of the ways that we can provide a counterfeit form of righteousness is to create laws that can form us externally, but the heart doesn't change. I mean, that's exactly what Jesus confronted in the Pharisees and the other religious leaders during his earthly ministry, wasn't it? He said, you all look really good on the outside, but on the inside, you're corrupt. On the inside, you're polluted. On the inside, where it really matters, there hasn't been change. Let me recommend to you this morning that if you're wrestling through that very subject, if you're wondering about whether or not what is on the outside is really what's on the inside, then let's make this year the year where you abandon religion completely. Now, I need to qualify that. I don't mean abandon truth. I don't mean abandon the faith. I don't mean abandon Christianity. I mean abandon religion. How many pastors this year are encouraging their congregations in 2022 to abandon religion? Because religion is nothing more than the external conformity to expectations and rules without inner transformation. 
So if I can encourage you to abandon the external conformity in favor of guaranteeing that the Holy Spirit truly has done the inner rejuvenating work of giving you new life, then we'll be on a path towards genuine fruitfulness. But Paul doesn't start, stop there in, in Ephesians chapter 5. If you continue on, remember his letters were Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, he actually puts Christ up as the model, as the example. He says, therefore, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to describe everything that our Lord gave up in order to take on this humble servant role that he did during the Incarnation. But it's preceded in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, with these sort of if statements, if these things are in place. And if you have your Bible in front of you, you can, I give you permission, you can cross out the word if and you can write the word since. In the original language, that's really what it means. Since these things are present, one of which is fellowship with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inside of you, conforming you, energizing you, empowering you, guiding you in order to imitate your Lord and Savior. Colossians does the same thing in chapter 3. In fact, that's an area where we're going to take a look at in more detail as we unpack the cross-references here in Romans chapter 12, but I will ask you to turn to that one in particular. Colossians chapter 3, I think it's one of the most beautiful statements in all of the Bible about what it means to live a life of humility and conformity, not because of your own effort, but because of the power of the Spirit of God inside of you. If we were to pick up our reading in Colossians 3, beginning right there in verse 1, we read this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You set your mind on the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He is your life. He gives new life, and then he empowers your life. And therefore, you can put to death all of these immoral behaviors listed there, beginning in verse 5. And you can put on, then, verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, all of these virtues that manifest your ability to imitate him. Only then are you truly going to be able to thank him. Only then, verse 16, will the word of God dwell in you richly and will you be wise and will you be able to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart to God. Only then will everything you do in word and in deed be done in the name of Jesus Christ. Only then will wives be able to submit to their husbands in a way that is fitting to the Lord, and husbands love their wives and not become harsh or embittered towards them. Only then will children obey their parents and slaves their masters. Only then will you be able to not show any kind of partiality, even to those who have wronged you. And only then will those who are the masters treat those who are under them with the kind of honor and respect that is befitting of a Christian. You see... It's not merely a list of do's and don'ts that are presented to you and then you are supposed to, by your own grit and effort, obey them. It is rather looking back on what's already happened to you as a believer, the, the transformation that's gone on inside of you, and then the ethical implications and expectations of that. Paul doesn't stop there, though, in Colossians, in 1 Thessalonians. He goes on to describe this as well in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
doing the will of God by the power of the Holy Spirit to be sanctified, and then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 and following, on and on and on again through all of his letters to the churches, he goes back to the principle that the Spirit of God is at work in you, and you, therefore, will be transformed. I love that. I love that. Because... Um, because that means that I have a power source that is supernatural at work inside of me. And if you're a believer, you've got that same source at work inside of you. And you can rest in His willingness to transform you, not in your performance. And if we can, at the very beginning of this new year, set it in our minds that, that we're going to be a church that is diligent in how we proclaim these truths such that nobody walks away thinking, well, I just didn't meet the standard this week, and therefore God is not happy with me, and instead come away every single week re-energized and encouraged in the truth of the gospel that the work has already been done for you, and that no righteousness apart from that of Christ is ever going to be evaluated on your behalf. That when you stand before the Lord one day, it's not about, well, did I do better good works than bad works? It's going to be Am I clothed in the righteousness of Christ and judged by those works alone? If we can understand that every week, if we come to the Lord's table realizing that, that the work is finished and that it's not about whether or not we have earned our right to come to the table, if that can be what, what, what constantly comes out of our times together on the Lord's day, then we're going to be stronger at the end of, of this year than right now as we started. So let's make that our goal and our motive and our ambition. And by the way, Paul doesn't stop with just telling the churches that. If you read First and Second Timothy and Titus and Philemon, you'll see that he pours that into the personal letters as well. He calls them to a standard of forgiveness and righteousness and holiness and patience and love and grace and forgiveness that he knows full well they could never attain to on their own and in their own strength, no matter how virtuous they are. And instead, he tells them to look back on the fact that God's already transformed your heart through the Spirit and giving you the ability to honor him that way. So, with that, let's turn our attention then, if we can, to Romans chapter 12, sort of giving you an introduction by tracing it through the entire New Testament, as it were. But I think it suffices to say that this is not a new principle for Paul. And so here, as we open it up in Romans chapter 12, I'd like you to follow along. And by the way, we're going to spend several weeks in here, so don't worry about trying to cover it all in just the few moments we have left before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We'll cover these sections over the next three weeks. But I'd like to read the entire section to you just so you've got some context, okay? So Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, and I'm going to read down through verse 21. This is God's Word. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. 
Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not, or to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do we overcome evil with good? I know many of you are hoping I'll jump ahead to the dumping burning coals on your enemy's head section. I'll get there. But before we get there, we have to understand not only what does it mean to overcome evil in the world, but how do we overcome evil in our own heart? You see, I believe that that's Paul's theme throughout this section, but he's going to show us how to show the kind of humility, how to show the kind of love that is genuinely transcendent, genuinely love that comes from God. And he's going to show us how to manifest this in the body of Christ, in the world, and even to our enemies. In the body of Christ, in the world, and even towards our enemies. And this morning, we're just going to look at how to manifest that kind of love within the body of Christ. And I want to give you four words to help you remember it. How do you manifest this kind of love and humility within the body of Christ? Four words. The first one is humility. The second is honor. The third is hope. The fourth is hospitality. Humility, honor, hope, and hospitality. Let's begin by looking at the first one, which is humility. Verse 9 he says, let love, and that's a agape love, that's the, the strongest form of love, that's a love that is beyond what is normally shown within the world, it's a love of sacrifice, it's a love of choice, he says, let that kind of love be present among you and let it be genuine. That's what the ESV translators choose to translate the word as, but actually in the original it's a negative. It's a negative word that simply means without hypocrisy. You see, the positive here is shown by describing it as a negative. The word genuine is a word that means not disingenuous. When he says that your love be genuine, he is saying let your love not be hypocritical. In fact, it's the very same theme that goes through here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I made reference to it earlier, but just listen as I read chapter 6, verse 6, as Paul describes what it is that we are to be, especially in terms of our relationship to others. He talks about his love for others and his patience and his grace that is extended to even his enemies, that he does so by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, with the power of the Holy Spirit resulting in genuine love. You see, genuine love is one of the characteristics of those who are humble, believe it or not. It's very difficult to be proud and arrogant and also loving. You don't know very many arrogant, loving people. It's very hard to love in arrogance. It's very hard to love in pride. In fact, if you're a proud person, you know who you love the most? It's you. Arrogant people have love, but it's a massive amount of love for themselves. Arrogant people, proud people, they they really have a massive capacity for love, but it's all directed inward. They love, but they love themselves. 
A non-hypocritical love, a love that is extended towards others, is a love that is very, by its very nature a humble love. It's a giving love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love that is willing to put yourself second or last. How is it manifest? Notice what he goes on to say. Abhor what is evil. It's a very strong word. It's only used here in the New Testament. It's a word that was essentially crafted by Paul to describe the relationship we should have towards that which is evil. In fact, you are to overcome it. We'll see down in verse 21. The only way to defeat evil is to defeat it with this kind of genuine, non-hypocritical, humble love that absolutely overpowers the darkness and the hatred of the world controlled by Satan. So you absolutely and positively reject in every way that which is evil and you hold fast or to bind or to cleave onto what is good, what is intrinsically good. If you wanted to describe what a person who is humble, especially in light of their relationship to the body of Christ, what they look like, they are those who have this agape love, a love that is without any kind of hypocrisy, there is no hidden motive. Uh, There is nothing that you're looking to get in return. It's a love that is shown within the body of Christ. It is a special kind of love that is known really only to us and for us, given to us by Christ himself. It is one that absolutely rejects anything that is evil and instead holds fast to the things that are good, good in the way that God is good, intrinsically good, biblically good, spiritually good. Humility. Also, honor. Look down at verse 10. Once again, we're going to see the English word love, and in that, I think we can begin to see the rather limited scope of our English language when it comes to a word like love, because it's the same word in English, but they're all very different words in the original, so let me describe it for you. Uh, Here in verse 10, he says love, and this is not the agape form of love, this is the brotherly love, Philadelphia. We get the city name from this word, the city of brotherly love, right? This is the kind of brotherly affection that you show to one another. And my translation sort of confusingly translates the second word, brotherly affection. But there, it's not brotherly affection, it's family affection. So here you go. This is going to sound a little bit awkward, but if I were to translate this myself, you could say, let the sacrificial love be without hypocrisy, and may the brotherly love that you show to one another be the love that you would have within a family. You need to lovingly love those in a brotherly and in a familial kind of way. The absolute sacrificial love, but then also the love of friendship. The love of simply caring for your fellow man. What good is it for people to come into a church like ours and to see a very high and lofty view of sacrificial love such that somebody might even be willing to lay down their life for another person, but there isn't a single trace of liking one another? You ever been in a situation where somebody is willing to sacrifice for you, they're willing to lay down their life for you, they're they're willing to give it all, but they simply can't stand you? Doesn't make any sense, does it? Paul says, look, there's no point in having a church that's got all this kind of agape love, and he says even of himself there in 1 Corinthians 13, all this love, willing to lay down your life, willing to give yourself up to be burned, but man, I just can't stand being around those people. In fact, sometimes I pray, Lord, arrange for me to be able to give my life because it would mean one less week of having to hang out with them. 
I love you. I just don't like being around you. You ever had love like that? People use words like that. Oh, oh you know, I love them, but... I really love her, but listen for that, because it happens all the time. You know, in the South, they give it away because they say things like, bless their heart. But see, we're not in the South, so we say things like, oh, I love George, but if the word but comes after their expression of love for the person, you know that it's not genuine love. It's the hypocritical kind of love. It's love but. And, and that doesn't creep in so much in the agape kind of love because you can be sacrificial and you can lay down your life and you can sacrifice and everything's really good on the outside. Where, where that sort of love becomes tested is in the day-to-day interactions with the people that the Lord throws you into fellowship with. That's what you have going on in a local church. And so Paul says, not only do you show that kind of sacrificial love, but you also show the brotherly love. In fact, it's a brotherly love that is so tolerant and so forgiving and so wide and so merciful and so accepting that it's actually the kind of love that is a family kind of love. That second word, again, translated brotherly affection here, it's also based on the Greek phileo kind of love, but it's a word that's only used here in the New Testament for a family love, the love uniquely shared within a family. How appropriate that we get to talk about that at the holidays. Because you've all experienced it. Family love. Families in town. Don't you love having family in town? There's something special about family. There is a certain grace, a certain tolerance, a certain latitude. There's a certain amount of family love that can't be explained to anybody else unless you're in the family, unless you're part of the family. In fact, there's, there's even a special kind of family love that makes you fight with people in the family in ways that you wouldn't let anyone else outside the family fight with them. It's like you can say that about your brother or sister, but no one else can. If anyone else says that about your family member, it's very offensive. But you can say something ten times worse, and it doesn't matter because we're family. I can say that about my crazy uncles, but you better not. I can say that about my parents, but you better not. I can say that about my brothers and sisters, but you better not. It's different if I say it, because we're family. We stick together, right? Same thing in the church. I fully expect you to say things about each other, but just don't let anyone else say about us, all right? We're going to be honest about ourselves, because in some, in some ways, listen, I mean, if you're visiting with us, I'm going to let you in on a secret. Uh, in some ways, Tri-City Bible Church, I mean, we're a hot mess in some areas, and we'll say that about each other and about ourselves, but I better not hear anyone else saying, about us, saying that about us outside the church. It's different when the outsider says that. The family can say it. The family can identify their weaknesses. The family can identify their struggles. And Paul says, listen, you've got to have that kind of love for one another such that it's the family affection that no one understands except those who are in the family. And not only is it the love of sacrifice and the love of brotherly fellowship, but it's the love of the family. How does that play out? Well, here it is. You honor one another in a very special way. In fact, you outdo one another in showing honor. Again, this section is filled with words that only appear here in the New Testament, but, but Paul says that you need to outdo. Uh, it simply means to set the example or to go first. You say, follow me. Let me be the example of what it means to show honor. 
I want to be the first one to go out of my way to show honor in this situation. Now again, I'm going to ask you to imagine a situation that you might be in where you know this has to happen. And everyone's looking around for somebody else to be the first person to do the right thing, the first person to show the honor. May I encourage you to be the one who steps out first. Paul says, listen, you need to be an example in this regard. Now, outdo one another sounds rather competitive. Now, if you want to make it a com competition, then I, I, would, I would encourage you to do so. Some of us are competitive by nature. We see that as well around the holidays when we get together and families start playing board games together. You ever seen that? whole other side comes out. Competitive nature. Can we be competitive about outdoing one another and showing honor? How about that? How about a church filled with people that are going out of their way to be the first to show the kind of honor that is described here as genuine love? The word honor, by the way, just means to give something its proper price or value or worth. You show honor by, by treating somebody according to the value that they have. And the value that they have, especially as children of God, is a value that is infinite. And that is how we treat one another. And so, as a result, he says in verse 11, you've got to be at this with a certain amount of effort. Don't be slothful in your zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Uh, there is a temptation, maybe, for this to get wearisome after a while. And he says, I don't want you to be slothful. I don't want you to be lazy. I don't want you to just sit back and think that somebody else is going to do it for you. There is an amount of effort here. I don't mean to undo everything I said at the beginning of this message, but I do need to make it clear that within the context of our Christian walk, there is a certain degree of effort one makes to demonstrate that they take it seriously. You're never going to do anything successfully if you don't work at it. The same thing is true in terms of understanding what the Lord has instructed us to be. And so we are not slothful. In fact, we are zealous. We work hard at this. It fills us with joy. It, it fills us with a desire to do it. We have real zeal, a real desire to make this happen in our lives and for the good of those in the body. We become fervent in spirit. Kind of a difficult translation for what the author is trying to say. It just means that you're energized from the inside. You don't need to be motivated by somebody else. You don't need to have anyone tell you what to do. You, you have that natural desire within you. And so... The way it plays out particularly here is that you will serve the Lord. You will serve the Lord. Now I want you to underline that because Paul is elevating the degree of service here as he began his discussion in Romans chapter 12. He's now elevating it to the extreme. Look, if you will, up at verse 1 of chapter 12, and I would remind you that he begins this entire chapter by saying, that he appeals to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or your spiritual service. And um, the word worship is good. It's, it's the word that we actually get liturgy from. It's the idea that you are serving by worshiping. It is your divine, reasonable service of worship. But then he adds to it, it's not just going to gather together and to worship the Lord in the way that you should, but there's also a practical element to your service. Look down at verse 7. Remember when we were talking about the gifts. He says, those of you who serve in the serving. 
Uh, this is the word we get deacon from. So not only is it serving the way the priests would in terms of the liturgy of the church and the worship service, but it is also serving in the way that the deacons did, where they were meeting the practical needs of the people. Uh, they were there to, to wait on tables, uh, just to do the practical stuff. If you arrive here uh, early on a Sunday morning, you'll see people walking around doing the practical serving work of the ministry. They're setting up tables. They're putting on tablecloths. They're putting out literature. They're setting up communion elements. Uh, they're practicing their, their songs and getting their instruments ready for worship. Uh, they're doing the practical work that is supporting what we get to enjoy when we arrive here right at 10.30 or even a little bit late. All the work is done for us, so we just arrive. Now, I'm not saying that that should be our attitude. In fact, wouldn't it be wonderful if we all arrived early to help? But the reality is there are those who have set themselves apart for that task. Paul now is elevating it, though, to an entirely different level. Not only those who are serving in the worship, not only those who are serving in the practical means, but now he says those who are serving as the doulos of the Lord. That word for slave, that, that one who has abandoned his identity and his will and allowed it to be assumed by Christ. The one who has been, been willing to walk away from his desires and his ambitions. Essentially bought by the Lord with a price. His slave to do his will, his bidding, whatever that may be. And so when we are overcome with a zeal and a fervency, it manifests itself in a willingness to serve the Lord in this sacrificial spirit, no matter what he calls us to do. Uh, this was what Paul described as the nature of his ministry. If you turn back a little bit to Acts chapter 20, I love the way that he describes it for us here. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is saying goodbye the Ephesian elders. And if you're looking at what this sort of ministry looks like, practically speaking, in the life of a man who by God's grace was able to live it out, you see that in the words of Paul to these elders, and I just present them to you this morning. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this was the nature of his ministry. Paul says down in verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 27, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so he turns it on them in verse 31 and says, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I didn't cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Verse 35, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. It's an amazing 
testimony. And that's not Paul being arrogant and proud and patting himself on the back. That is Paul saying that by God's grace and His grace only, I have been able to spend myself for your good day and night in every way. And so I would appeal to you this morning to, to look to Him as an example. He did work hard. But it wasn't just external effort where He said, I'm just going to grind it out because of grit, because this is what God has called me to, and I'm going to be holy, and I'm going to be just in this way. He says, I, I did it and I worked hard, but it was really the Spirit of God working in and through me to accomplish these things. And therefore, He takes no credit for it. I think it leads well into our third word for this morning, and that is hope. Because there's no way for us to show humility and to go out of our way to be the first to show honor to others without some kind of hope that in the end, things will work out for our good. And so Paul says, beginning in verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be consistent in prayer. He begins by saying rejoice. I don't know about you, but it's uh, difficult sometimes to take everything that comes to you in ministry and receive it with rejoicing. Sometimes you look at a situation and it doesn't go the way you wanted it to. Maybe things like that are happening in your marriage or in your family or in your ministry. You have a certain expectation, a certain desire to see people grow maybe in the Lord or to, to reach a level of spiritual maturity. You see people continually falling back into sin or rejecting the graces of God in their life through the, the fellowship in the church. You, you, maybe you see people uh, around you that have, have turned on you or rejected you or done something to undermine you or turn against you. Maybe you look at yourself and you say, I, I don't know, the problem really is more with me. I'm more discouraged about myself than anybody else. It's hard to rejoice because I look at my own life and I just don't seem to be making any kind of progress. Well, whether you're looking at others or looking at yourself, can I encourage you this morning with what Paul says? He says, in all of that, our rejoicing doesn't come from looking at how it's going. It comes from looking at where we're going. The hope you have doesn't come from looking at how it's going. It comes from looking at where you're going. The fact is, the Lord is calling us all to a day where all will be made right, where everything will be perfected, where you will be glorified, and he guarantees it, and therefore everything that we do, and everything we receive and experience ought to be done through the lens of that hope. And that is what will make you patient. Patient in tribulation. The word patient is the opposite of grumbling. You cannot grumble and be patient at the same time. You cannot whine and be patient at the same time. You cannot Question God and be patient at the same time. I think it's easy to not grumble sometimes. You just sort of force it. It's easy to not complain sometimes. You just remind yourself. The hardest thing to do and one of the things that's most corrosive with respect to patience is to question the sovereignty of God. Now, this was directed to my attention even this morning as I was reading in my own quiet time through a devotional that I thoroughly enjoy. It's called Table Talk, and I highly recommend it to any of you if you haven't yet found something that you 
might like to read to guide your thoughts, maybe, for your time with the Lord in the morning. But in this uh, particular edition, which happens to be focused on humility, just providentially, the authors put together a few short lessons on humility and husbands and fathers, humility and wives and mothers, and then this morning, I just happened to read humility in pastors and elders. And in this uh, particular little devotional, the author says this, many years ago, Albert N. Martin wrote a convicting booklet entitled The Practical Implications of Calvinism. It was loaded with tidbits of biblical wisdom, but one that has remained with me over the years is this. You cannot believe in the sovereignty of God and be a proud Christian. You cannot believe in the sovereignty of God and be a proud Christian. Now, I know what he probably means by that in the sense that you look around and you see the good things that the Lord is doing through the the ministry that you have or through your church, and you can't become proud. You have to say it's the sovereignty of God. But can I encourage you this morning that when it goes the other direction, you also have to believe in the sovereignty of God. (laughs) That when things don't go so well, either with you or with your ministry or with your church or in your family, you also need to therefore be patient even in those tribulations and rejoice in the hope that we have believing in the sovereignty of God, working all things together for His glory. How do you get through those times? Well, he says your hope is framed up in the constant prayer that you offer to the Lord. Prayer, by the way, is not just that time that you set aside for the specific act of praying. Prayer is also the regular communion that you have with the Lord every day, all the time, as situations come your way, and you simply lift up to Him a prayer, asking for wisdom, perhaps, asking for grace in how you handle a situation, giving Him thanks for some wonderful thing that happened, asking Him to strengthen you as you endure a trial, even praying that He will prepare your heart to receive somebody in a way that shows grace and mercy and kindness, that that you would be to them the way that Christ was to everyone He encountered. The constancy of your prayer doesn't mean that you don't do anything except pray. The constancy in prayer means that in everything you're doing it, you do it prayerfully. And so there's humility. There's honor. There's hope. And then finally, there's hospitality. Now, this comes to us in verse 13, another way in which we serve and love the body of Christ. He says here that we are to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Two parts to this. We're contributing to needs and we're showing hospitality. Let's take a look at the first one because this is one that no doubt you have seen before and maybe have some questions about. What does it mean to contribute to the needs of the saints? Paul deals with this in detail over in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So let's go there to kind of get a running start at this if we can. I'll look over a few pages to 2 Corinthians again. And in chapters 8 and 9, Paul unpacks for us what it means to give generously. What it means to give joyfully. Now there was in those days a great disparity between the material provision offered to some churches and others. And Paul says that it is appropriate and good for the churches that had much to provide for those that had little. And so he says there in verse 13, let's just pick it up there in chapter 8, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that it is a matter of fairness. Matter of fairness. It's the word we get isometric from in English, equal-sided. There's an equality here. 
He says, it is only fair for those that you have, who have more to give to those who have less. Verse 14, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. I'm going to spend a little bit more time unpacking this, but that particular reference goes back even into the Old Testament when people would gather the manna every morning. Do you remember that? Every morning you would go outside and like frost on the ground. And for those of you not accustomed to frost, frost is what comes before the snow. It's like frozen water on top of the ground or on top of your windshield. Frost is the indication that winter is close. I know here it's a little bit different. In a cold climate, it covers the ground. And the people would go out and that bread from heaven had covered the ground. And what's so interesting is that the one who gathered more than he needed for the day and stored it up as an indication that he wasn't entirely sure that God would provide again tomorrow, if he goes into that basket of the manna collected the day before and tries to eat it, it's covered in worms. God sends maggots to spoil the bread of those who had collected more than they needed. And he says, likewise, the one who wasn't very good at manna collection never went hungry. That in his divine providence, if you were weak and slow, you didn't go hungry. And if you were strong and fast, you didn't get more. Everything was leveled out. And so, borrowing that analogy, Paul says that for those who are generous to the poor, he is saying be generous within the body of Christ, and if you have been given much, then you should be concerned about those who have little that God might not, in just supernatural ways, increase the bank accounts of some and deplete that of others. He allows us to be part of the process, even as a church, of caring for believers who are in need. And that's why it is so important for us to do that here through our missions program, for example, and the partnerships we have with ministries in South America and in Africa that we as a church that is blessed in a material sense with far more than we actually need to be able to then share and to give to those who have need. He carries on with this. Notice that he's in chapter 9 summarizing the cheerfulness of the giving beginning in verse 6. He says the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you get the recurring word there, you may abound in every good work. You want to know what it means to abound in the good work of the ministry it means at times to simply be cheerfully generous to those who have less than you. And here in this situation, when Paul, talking about hospitality, says contribute to the needs of the saints, may I encourage you to look around and don't assume that because we all live in America that everybody has everything they need. Look around and say, relative to your position, are there those that you can serve by meeting needs? Now that's a very practical way, but let's move forward to the next section. He says, and seek to show hospitality. 
This is going to require me to give you a little bit of explanation for what the word really means. It means to, to love strangers. When we talk about hospitality today, most of us refer to what it means to have our friends over, to have a barbecue, and then play card games. Um, that's wonderful. That's, that's fellowship. Uh, that's encouraging. Uh, but that's not hospitality in the, the biblical definition. That's more like entertainment. Uh, we're having fun together with people that we know. Hospitality meant that you would extend this kind of love to strangers, to people you didn't know. In fact, in the ancient world, hospitality was critical. Hospitality could literally save somebody's life. A biblical definition of hospitality could be this. It is the process of changing a stranger into a guest. You see, strangers, when they came into a strange town, were in need of someone to care for them, to provide for them, to be a patron for them. Now, I would argue that some of you are in a position to be able to do that. The, the Lord has blessed you with, with more than you need financially, with more than you need in terms of bedrooms in your home, with more than you need in terms of your time. In, in every conceivable way, you're able to give some of the excess that God has blessed you with in order to encourage somebody who is in need. And, and here, the way that it would play out in the ancient world is that somebody would receive from you your patronage, your care, your provision. And there was a mutual understanding. It's fascinating when you begin to look at it just historically. What, what was it like to be in a hospitality culture? Let me explain this to you. I think you'd find it really interesting. Um, and if you don't, just nod and, and pretend you do, because that would make me feel better. But here it is. When you were a guest, these are the expectations on, on you. Remember, this is somebody who's putting you up, somebody who is hosting you, somebody who does not know you. You are a stranger, but you are going to be with them. Uh, the expectation on you as a guest is that, number one, you must not insult your host. Seems reasonable. You must not insult your host. Number two, you don't usurp your host's authority, meaning you don't show up, sit down on the couch, put your feet up on the ottoman, and then boss their servants around. You don't insult them, you don't usurp their authority, and you don't deny whatever is offered to you in terms of food. You're not rude to them. You don't say, well, I don't, I don't eat that. If they present the food to you, you don't say, well, is that vegan? You eat it. I remember Paul says that even in situations where you might be tempted to not want to eat it because it's meat sacrificed to idols, and there's a very clear way in which you unpack that relationship. He's going to get into it in chapter 14. But here, in terms of hospitality, when somebody is a guest, they don't insult, they don't usurp, and they don't refuse. But what about the hosts? The hosts have some expectations as well. If you're a host in the ancient world, number one, you are to respect the people who you provide lodging for. You don't look down on them. You don't, you don't treat them as kind of the riffraff who had nowhere else to go. You show respect for them as people. You don't act like they're less than you or there's some subcategory. You treat them like you would anybody else. Secondly, you protect them. You protect their honor. You protect their dignity. Now, this is one of the reasons why Lot, when the two angels came to visit and were put up in his home, Lot, in a perverse application of this principle, in order to protect his guests, actually gave up his own daughters. As wicked as that was, 
understand that his mindset was that he was actually doing what he was supposed to be doing as a host in the ancient world. You were to protect the people who came under your roof. And then number three, you were to provide for them whatever their needs happened to be. That would, of course, be food and, and lodging, shelter. Uh, in fact, you were oftentimes even expected to provide them with a little bit of extra money so that they could support themselves from one city to the next. Now, what's really interesting about this is that once that hospitality has been shown, it was not reciprocal. So here's what I mean by that. If you were visiting our city and you were brand new and nobody knew you and a family agreed to host you in their home, they would be showing hospitality to you. However, if you were then at a future date to be visiting in their town and they were to host you, they would not be showing hospitality because you are no longer a stranger. Hospitality has done its work when it turns a stranger into a guest. How wonderful would it be for us to be about the, the ministry and the business of helping strangers become guests. You see, that was expected of the early church. If you go to 3 John, flip over there, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation. It's the three little letters written by John at the end of the New Testament. And really, the whole theme of this is hospitality. And in this short little letter, 3rd John, we read about the reputation of a church and about those who are in it with respect to hospitality. In fact, if you pick up the story here in verse 5, there's no chapters because there's only one. He says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. Meaning that there were people who had come in and they had been received by the believers that John is writing to in this church and they testified to it in the church for the wonderful example that these people had been to them. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Now, what happens on those who don't do it? Look at the reputation. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. The Diotrephes was an infection in that church, not just because of doctrine, not just because he was full of himself, but the thing that John isolates as the indication that Diotrephes was a really bad guy is that he wasn't receiving people and showing that kind of hospitality and he was forbidding other people in the church from doing that. So understand that this is not just something nice that we can do for people. It's actually a characteristic of what it means to be a spirit-filled believer. And once again, I would just say to you, may this be the year when perhaps for the first time we fully understand and appreciate the power of hospitality and the way that you can bless somebody by turning them from a stranger into a guest. True love without hypocrisy, shown towards the body of Christ, in humility 
in honor, in hope, and in hospitality. Now, you might say, well, what about showing that kind of love to people outside the church? And and what about showing that kind of love even to our own enemies? Well, we're going to cover that. You have to come back. Over the next two weeks, we'll unpack that in detail, and I think you're going to be incredibly encouraged by what we learn in this amazing chapter. Let us pray. Our Father, as we prepare our hearts now to receive the Lord's Supper, I ask that you would remind us that it is the very portrait of the gospel, uh, that it is laying out for us the indisputable reality that your Son came to this world with a mission. And though we celebrate the humiliating advent of that arrival during Christmas, we look forward to the triumphant culmination of it at Easter when he can say it is finished. And looking forward to that event just hours before, setting the table for his disciples and reminding them of the new covenant that would be in his death. Lord, as we celebrate that new covenant this morning, I pray that you would encourage our hearts with the truth that it points to a work already finished. That we would not be counted among those who approach this table fearfully, who approach this table with a sense of shame and guilt, but rather those who approach the table with boldness. Oh, Father, if you have called us to approach the very throne room of heaven with boldness, how much more so can we approach the table with boldness? If our sins are so utterly and completely forgiven that we can come before the very throne of grace expecting nothing but mercy, how much more so can we come to this table expecting nothing but mercy? If every single righteous deed of Christ that fulfilled the law and his act of obedience has been applied to us and is going to be the only basis on which we are judged, I pray that you would expand our mind to appreciate that when we come to this table, it is a time of joyful celebration and remembrance of that work that you've accomplished. And I do pray that if there's somebody here this morning that is wrestling with that and continues to wrestle with that, that today would be the day where you liberate them from any thought that is not consistent with this truth of the gospel. Father, we know that You call us to examine ourselves, but it's never in a context of being worthy of coming to this table. It is in a context of whether or not we are truly in the faith. And so I ask that we would do that and that we would examine ourselves, but not confuse that with some sort of preliminary activity that has to be done in order to make ourselves acceptable to you that we might be able to receive these elements. And so, Lord, as we prepare to do that today, I ask that you would do the mighty work in our lives that you promised to do through the power of the Holy Spirit. For it's in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray these things. Amen.